Hello, and welcome to the eighth installment of Holdelpack's Crypto in Congress podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wordy. This week's guest is a former colleague of mine at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, Diego Zuluaga. Diego is the Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute and has spent lots of time thinking about crypto-specific regulatory issues, other relevant financial regulatory topics, as well as the philosophical underpinnings of these important policy conversations. So without further ado, Diego, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said in the intro, you and I used to work together at Cato, uh, and I thought an appropriate first question would be, you know, what is the Cato Institute uh, and what is the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives? So the Cato Institute is a public policy research organization of which there are many in Washington, D.C., and they're usually called think tanks. And the Cato Institute's job is to move public policy particularly at the federal government level in the United States, but also at the state and local government levels in the direction of individual liberty, free markets, and peace. Uh, So Cato is a broadly libertarian uh, organization, very broad church in that it welcomes all kinds of strands of libertarianism. And it's also pragmatic in the way that it pursues public policy change to the extent that we're always willing to compromise if we believe that the change suggested moves us closer to the kind of world we want to see. But in addition to uh, working on research in public policy, Cato does a lot of educational outreach and activity uh, about the ideas of freedom, which, of course, uh, as, as a lot of your listeners will know, have uh, a great uh, tradition and, and, and very much of, a, um, of, of, of deep roots in the United States in particular. They're very much foundational. And so we raise awareness and point people to resources that explain what the idea of liberty has been over time and how it is always valuable and useful for uh, letting people live fulfilled lives. And you're now the Associate Director for Financial Regulation Studies in the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. So what do you focus on there and what does uh, CMFA do in general? So the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives uh, at the Cato Institute was founded in 2015, and it was founded to bring together a lot of the banking, monetary policy, and financial regulation work that was already happening at the Institute. After the 2008 financial crisis, there had been an explosion in new financial regulations through the Dodd-Frank Act and also other separate pieces of legislation. And in addition to that, monetary policy had changed a great deal, uh, become, in the eyes of some at least, much more accommodating. Uh, and uh, there was not, it was perceived, certainly at Cato, not enough understanding of the implications of this, of these monetary policy changes for the future. And the CMFA was created to address a lot of those challenges because they are particularly, cha- particularly challenges to uh, a lot of the ideas of liberty because they involve government getting involved in many other new areas and usually under premises that we believe not to be very justified. We don't buy typically the... Uh, standard interpretation of what caused the financial crisis, namely that it was free markets run amok and that government intervention is the solution. So that was the genesis of the CMFA. And I was brought in in 2018 to focus specifically on financial technology, including crypto, because, of course, at the time, crypto had there had been, first of all, an explosion in the price of Bitcoin. And then after that, um, a uh, frenzy of new issues of different digital tokens which called themselves cryptocurrencies, even though some didn't ever come to fruition. So over those uh, two and a half years that I've been at the CMFA, I've written on various subjects related to that, uh, but also on consumer credit, 
um, lending discrimination and, and various other areas. So as you mentioned, Cato is a libertarian organization. Crypto is widely viewed, I think, in shorthand as a libertarian movement. Do you think that's correct? And, and why do you think that is? There's certainly a lot of overlap between a lot of libertarian ideas and the ideas that led Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous founder of founders of, of Bitcoin, to uh, champion this decentralized this this innovation in decentralized exchange, because it is no coincidence that the Bitcoin white paper, which is called a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, um, was developed in late 2008 when the financial crisis was raging. There was a great deal of distrust in banks at the time. There was a perception in some quarters, certainly, that the central banks' interventions to try and restore confidence in the economy wasn't going to work. And of course, there's a history of skepticism that central bank management of uh, money can preserve its long-term value. And since central banks were created, a lot of fiat monies around the world have lost a great deal of their purchasing power uh, over the long term. And I think a lot of those views motivated the people who were involved in the creation of the first cryptocurrency, and also a lot of the people who have since championed it, bought it, advocated it as an alternative. And, um, you know, Bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies are useful in countries that are particularly anti-libertarian. I'm sure we'll discuss this later, but in places like Venezuela or in places like even China or Russia, which have repressive financial systems, but also other repressive government policies, having a um, payments network that is wholly independent of government institutions and separate from it can be promoting of liberty. Absolutely. So as you said, one of the things that Cato does is to educate the general public about the history of liberty as it relates to public policy. Um, you know, CMFA also plays that role and writes about historical financial arrangements like private currencies and payment and banking systems that existed without a central bank. Can you talk a bit about some of the history lessons that might be relevant to crypto-related policy? Sure. I think the the basic lesson of history is that government monopolies tend to deteriorate liberty in all sorts of areas. When government, because it has the power of coercion, it also has the ability to uh, prevent people from exiting its particular systems. Those systems tend to work against freedom, but also uh, people's um, value and, and you know the savings that they hold in the case of money and so forth. And we take that lesson very seriously and we try to raise awareness of the fact that the current monetary and financial system we have in America is one in which government probably has too much power still, and that central banks' management not only of fiat money, but also of financial stability historically hasn't been as good as the standard account tells us. We still have lots of financial crises, even though we've had central banks in the United States for 107 years, uh, in other countries for even longer than that. And we've had very severe financial crises. And um, in countries that are not as lucky as the United States in having a well-developed constitutional system of checks and balances, developments are even worse. Central banks, uh, under the um, pressure of governments either elected or unelected, very quickly debase fiat currencies, and they engage in other policies such as 
co-opting banks to lend for to politically connected projects that are not valuable socially or, or even privately in the long term. And those things tend to cause economic harm and make people worse off. And so the, the this is a lesson of history in the United States. We also uh, have a need to explain better what the experience has been of banking regulation over the years. There's, an, there's, there's a widespread view that in the 19th century, we had a wild west of completely unregulated banking, which is untrue as the CMFA's director, George Selgin, has amply written about, and also Larry White from GMU, who's one of our senior fellows, and uh, in that the 20th century, and particularly the policies followed after the 1929 stock market crash, that those have brought more financial and economic stability. And we try to um, show, bring evidence to bear and use economic theory to demonstrate to people that those interpretations are incorrect in that we can draw better lessons to improve policy today from having a more accurate understanding of what happened. And, and I want to get into some of those policy discussions later. But before that, you know, you recently wrote a really interesting piece for libertarianism.org's uh, Visions for Liberty project uh, called A Libertarian Vision for Cryptocurrencies. And you talk about how cryptocurrencies may change our economic lives and by extension our you know, political and social lives as well. Can you talk about that article and maybe some of its takeaways? Absolutely. Visions of Liberty was a project that I really enjoyed collaborating with. And the idea was to paint a utopian vision of what a libertarian world might look, might look like in different policy areas. And so uh, a bunch of my colleagues and I were asked to write specific chapters on areas like online privacy and money and banking and cryptocurrency and immigration and various uh, other areas. And I was tasked with writing the cryptocurrency chapter. And I wanted to tackle two particular issues that I find with current discussions around cryptocurrencies and their impact on the future. The first is the perception that the people, but by the people who very strongly support crypto and wanted to succeed and wanted to grow and see a lot of value in it. The perception that those preferences are very widely shared. And secondarily, another view, which I think is related to this one, that decentralized technology of which cryptocurrencies are a pioneer uh, iteration, that they will completely debunk intermediaries because intermediaries, whether public or private, whether central banks or regulated banks, are more inefficient. And I strongly doubt that both of those premises are true. In the first place, I think that a lot of the crypto community has very specific and minority preferences, which are very laudable and which I often share because I'm a libertarian that values those things a lot. But I don't think the general population necessarily does. And therefore, that the implication is that cryptocurrency will be helpful because it will make the overall environment of exchange more efficient, and it will particularly improve in areas where intermediaries are doing a very poor job, say international payments or record keeping in developing countries, things like that. But I also believe intermediaries will remain because the average person and the average person uh, is typically the consumer to which firms are catering, likes to have someone to complain to, uh, someone that is accountable and can reverse a wrongful transaction or can in other ways, address concerns that the consumer has. And decentralization has a harder time of dealing with those kinds of preferences, and therefore that intermediaries will remain. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I tend to agree that maybe the anarcho-capitalist vision of cryptocurrencies is not one that is particularly likely or even desirable. But, you know, as you said, I think there are areas where blockchains and decentralized networks can, you know, provide big improvements. And what are some of the things that you think can be improved by cryptocurrencies in decentralized technology? And what are some of the things that you think maybe aren't well suited for that? Sure. I'd say that in general, blockchains have, there's a reason why they've caught the attention of public policymakers, but also a lot of large companies have tried to develop blockchain implementations for their internal processes. And also individual entrepreneurs are trying to use the technology to develop new ways of delivering products to customers. There's no question about that. I don't want to seem like I am diminishing the technology at all. Um, but I think blockchains will be particularly, and, and distributed ledgers in general, will be particularly helpful in areas where you have relatively few intermediaries, often government regulated, often entry is limited by government charters or by other prerogatives that governments have put in place, such as, for example, designating a monopoly record keeper for stock exchanges or things like that, or a record keeper of land registries, that sort of thing. And over time, those, uh, for, because of a lack of competition pushing for innovation and change, those intermediaries have degraded and the service they provide is out of step with what people need, but also what technology allows. And blockchains, because they are non-corporate by definition, make it possible to have entry and competition without requiring, at least at the beginning, regulatory sanction. And that helps. And as a result of that, you finally get competition from outside and pressure on intermediaries from outside. And uh, if, they, if the blockchain application, the specific one, is um, useful, then it can even overtake existing um, intermediated systems of delivering value. What's an example I have in mind? International payments. So if you want to make an international payment via a bank from the United States to, say, the Philippines, chances are you have to go through five or six loops because you have to go to your, say, small local bank. And that local bank probably has a correspondent bank account. That is, it has a relationship with another larger bank in a big city that then keeps its own bank account with Federal Reserve. And from your bank to the correspondent bank, to the central bank, your funds will travel. From there, they uh, transfer across borders from central bank to central bank, and then from there to another correspondent bank, and finally to the local bank of the recipient to whom you're sending money. The example of the Philippines is appropriate because a lot of international transfers from the United States are remittances. And remittances are currently quite costly because people typically don't have that many funds to transfer, and the fixed cost of serving them is high because of all these loops, uh, all these hoops that, that you have to jump through. And uh, as a result, it, it's, it, you, know, you can pay as much as 7 or 8% of the transaction value to get a cross-border payment through. Now, Bitcoin, of course, was developed as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, but there have been other cryptocurrency initiatives that have tried to address international payments. And it's an area in which crypto can actually reduce the amount of, inter the, the amount of not just of intermediaries, but the amount of steps that you have to go through. You can potentially go to a crypto exchange in the US and buy some Bitcoin, send those Bitcoin to an address in the recipient country in the Philippines, and that recipient will convert them into uh, Philippine pesos. 
And so that is simpler and potentially so long as you can do it quickly enough that the price of Bitcoin, which is quite volatile, uh, hasn't changed so much as to introduce other frictions that can be more advantageous. So it's areas like that where I see blockchains particularly succeeding. But at any rate, having them around, having Bitcoin around already puts pressure. It's a bit like allowing people to own gold in its own way. It puts pressure on public authorities and even private banks to do things adequately because people will otherwise seek alternatives, alternatives that are value preserving, but also that allow them to do the things that they would normally do through intermediaries. Right. Yeah. So that's a great segue into talking a bit about crypto related policy. Your research focus is broader than just crypto stuff. You've written about things like the Community Reinvestment Act, bank regulations and uh, general payments regulation. What have you learned from focusing on this area about how to think about innovations like crypto? It's interesting because in financial regulation, as in other types of regulation, there are broadly two schools of thought. On one hand, you have the people who believe regulation is largely public spirited. And there is a perfectly sound, in many cases, economic argument for regulation, because markets differ from the kind of perfect frictionless environment that economic theory presents. And those imperfections sometimes make it possible for well-informed supervisors to come in and set certain conditions that improve the amount of transactions and, uh, and the conditions in which they're undertaken in a particular setting. That's one view. There's another view that says, yes, that's all very well, but even the people running the regulator are imperfect and they have their own incentives and they're also subject to pressure from other people. And therefore, uh, we have to look at the specific real life performance of regulators and see whether genuinely regulation actually helps rather than hinders economic activity in the way we want to see it. And one big concern of that particular school of thought is the capture by the, capture by the regulated institutions of the regulator. And I think that is a lesson I very much subscribe to a lot of the concerns of the second school of thought while accepting the theoretical case for regulation in many cases in finance. And I um, think that over time, the more financial regulation we get and the more those regulators become entrenched, the more difficult it is for private sector providers who are offering a valuable innovation to get it through without having to spend a long time making their case, or if they're lucky enough, a bit like Uber, to develop such a strong customer base in such a quick period of time as to have a very dispersed but very powerful base of advocates on their behalf. This is not advocating for Uber's approach, whatever it is to policy, but it's just an example. I think that is a key lesson that we have. And um, it's, you know, regulators will often advocate for the regulated institutions because if those regulated institutions are competed out of existence and they will have no one to regulate, (laughs) that's a challenge for their own turf and and existence. That's something I think we don't keep in mind enough when we're talking about uh, the reasons why policymakers will object to innovation. Yeah, you know, I've heard people, and I'm sure well-meaning people, you know, say say things like, oh, crypto needs its own regulator because it's such a new thing. Yeah, I, I imagine you don't agree with that. It's not inconceivable that similar activities would be regulated in a similar way. And therefore, if you're in the business of exchanging currencies, 
you should be regulated similarly whether you are a uh, physical office-based centralized intermediary uh, like MoneyGram or RIA or one of those and whether you're a crypto exchange. I think that's a sound case. I'm skeptical that a crypto-specific regulator would be good or helpful because crypto is a general purpose technology, uh, a bit like electricity or the internet. And we have a very difficult time predicting into the future what the actual applications will be. This is why in the early days with electricity as well as with the internet, it was very difficult to develop forward-looking policy. I mean, one of the reasons why a lot of people praise the Digital Millennium Act uh, of the late 90s is that it didn't really, I mean, it was, it was, it, it aimed to bring regulation into the internet age, but by not placing a lot of new requirements on companies operating on the internet. And people think that's precisely the reason why it was successful. And I think this is similar. Um, we have, however, as, as you and I have discussed many times, as, as is well known among people who follow this, um, we, we have suffered from a problem of uh, too few advocates for crypto within the regulators and within legislatures, because it's a relatively niche market. And it's not one that, for example, employs very many people or involves significant investment in a particular jurisdiction. And that, 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 that would therefore cause a politician to be particularly active in defending it. Absolutely. You know, well, I'll take that opportunity for a hodl pack plug because our goal is to support the champions in Congress that exist now and will hopefully continue to emerge in the future. You know, one of crypto's biggest regulator advocates has been Hester Peirce at the SEC, aka Crypto Mom, who you know quite well. You know, she recently came out with her safe harbor proposal. Um, and I know you've spent some time discussing this and writing about it. So can you explain what it is and maybe some of its pros and cons? Absolutely. If, if your listeners will bear with me for one second, I'll just give a little bit of background. Since 2017, there has been um, much controversy around the Security, Securities and Exchange Commission uh, regulation of cryptocurrencies because um, in various enforcement actions and according to the judgment of various expert lawyers, they fall under the definition of securities. And that definition of a security is established by legal precedent. Specifically, there's a case called um, Howie versus the SEC uh, in, from 1946, which caused the definition of securities to emerge, which are an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits from the efforts of others. Because at the beginning of a crypto project, typically, and, and Bitcoin was, of course, an, an exception to this, but because at the beginning of a crypto project, you will have a handful of developers working together to develop a network and asking people for funds so that they can develop it and in due course deliver to them tokens that represent value on that network. Um, you can have a brief window of time in which someone could argue that this is indeed a security, the contract that is being offered, because you, the interested third party, are giving these developers money into something that looks like a common enterprise because these developers are working together in something that they have an interest in and you also have an interest in the network and you have the expectation of profit, maybe broadly defined, maybe you don't necessarily are looking to make, maybe you're not necessarily looking to make money, but you're looking to get value out of the network. And uh, those that value, at least at the beginning, will come from the efforts of others, namely those developers that are working on the network. 
So there's been a lot of controversy, and I happen to believe that if you subject most cryptocurrencies to securities regulation with the um, registration requirements involved and the listing requirements for exchanges that are involved in this as well, you will get very little activity, and and that activity will be limited to very rich people who, for various reasons, are exempt from the main component of the securities laws. So what Commissioner Peirce is trying to do, I think, very wisely, is to introduce a period of time during which a project can develop on its own without being regulated as a security. And if at the end of that period, which I think is three years, it can demonstrate that it is not a common enterprise where people are investing money to get profit from the efforts of others, if they can demonstrate that, then they will thereafter not be regulated as security either. So the idea is we see promise in this technology, we want it to develop, and we will give them some breathing space and take a look at them three years later and see what they've come up with, which I think is is a healthy way to look at things. I think that's a really good description of one of the main uh, financial policy areas relevant to crypto. Uh, But there have been others as well, like, for example, the the Libra rollout that you covered. So what, what do you think have been the most interesting things to cover as a policy analyst in this space? I think the most interesting ones have been, firstly, the discussion around whether crypto exchanges can get some sort of federal alternative charter to the various state-based charters that they need to acquire to operate nationwide. And another interesting one has been Libra. The, the reason I think the, the, the first one, the money transmitter laws that are largely state-based is interesting is that the internet... And, and crypto, which I think is, is a development that stems ultimately from the internet as well, uh, has made trade borderless. And so state-level regulation struggles to keep up to the extent that it acts as a barrier to entry for small guys that will need to pay for 50 or 54, in the case of the U.S., because of the territories and so forth, different licenses to operate nationwide, because money transmission law is consumer-focused. So even if I'm a crypto exchange based in California, if people want to deal with me from the other 49 states, I will, I will have to be licensed in those other 49 states to be able to serve them. So that's a concern. And I happen to believe that there is uh, already scope for there to be federal alternatives that people can use to um, avoid the high cost of compliance and the, and the, the cumbersome nature of being regulated in so many different places. And it's one area where I think particularly underserved consumers could greatly benefit because a lot of America's unbanked use money transmitters to send funds, to send cash to relatives either at home or abroad. And therefore, to the extent you simplify the process for, for, by which these, these people can uh, operate, you um, lower cost and, uh, and make them better off. In the case of Libra, what was fascinating is... In the first place, the amazing virulent reaction from so many quarters to what seemed like a uh, very nascent early days idea. Indeed, some people called it half-baked, which perhaps was a little unfair. Um, when when it was, the project was first announced in uh, June of 2019, uh, the, the, the concern that there was that it suddenly would take over the world, when in fact it's just another application of a very promising technology. And I thought at the time it was very interesting because it sought to create a hybrid unit that would try to therefore be more value preserving. I had some other concerns about take up and so forth and the project has since changed. But of course, it also prompted central banks, which have be, had been 
largely dismissive of crypto until then, to consider digital currencies for the first time uh, in, in earnest. And you've had since then, not only in China, which has other issues for and other reasons for developing a central bank digital currency, but you've also had in, in, in the United Kingdom and in the European Union to some extent, and latterly in the United States as well through the Boston Fed and, and MIT's partnership with it, uh, very much of an interest in genuine implementations of digital currency, whether token-based or account-based, to compete with private sector existing alternatives. So all of a sudden, the, the interest in digital currency from very unlikely quarters has been aroused. Definitely. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned international competition. You know, putting aside the digital currency side of things, you mentioned the Digital Millennium Act that helped usher in, you know, U.S.-based innovation around the Internet in the late 90s and 2000s. Many people talk about how the U.S. is at risk of losing on crypto if we don't update our regulatory framework similarly to accommodate it. You're international yourself. You've spent some time in the UK policy world before coming to Cato. So what do you think of the international regulatory competition between places like the US and the UK? The UK has a much more centralized uh, regulatory system in finance. It has two regulators, the Bank of England, which deals mostly with prudential issues, that is risk management, um, system-wide, but also looking at the balance sheet of particularly large banks making sure that they're sound and safe, sometimes more successfully, sometimes less so. And then you have the Financial Conduct Authority, which is much more concerned with uh, consumer welfare, competition, uh, the conduct of institutions in terms of fraud and other things, but also promoting innovation. And as a result of that, it's had some, it's been able to change policy with regard to crypto, perhaps, more quickly than the US, because ultimately the FCA was never concerned about losing turf by defining crypto units, one kind or another, in one way or another, because ultimately they would still be regulated by the FCA. And I think that helped. The FCA has also has a very strong focus on cybersecurity and uh, staying competitive, because unlike the US, which, because it's such a large economy, and it's the hub of so much innovation. The UK, I think, feels the breath of competing centers like Singapore and Hong Kong and other places um, closer than, than, than the US does. Uh, they've, they've wanted to adapt very much. Switzerland is another example of this. And uh, in the US, we have a more competitive system of regulators. So we have various different federal banking and uh, securities regulators, the CFTC, the SEC, the Fed, the OCC, and so forth, and then the CFPB for consumer issues. But we also have state regulators, which are very important on things like money transmission. And that makes change slower. It makes regulators warier of losing remit. And therefore, it's it's been difficult to incorporate a little, a little bit of an awkward innovation like crypto that touches, ticks many different boxes in, 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 in different people's eyes into existing policy. On the other hand, you, um, you, you, you still have a lot of developer activity happening here and you have the biggest consumer market for crypto in the world. So not everything is lost and, and you know, I'm, not, I'm not a pessimist in, in getting changed through. In general, what I found and when in my less modest moments, I will call this Zuluaga's law of crypto policy, uh, is that the bigger, the bigger a financial center 
uh, in terms of the firms that are active in that market, the more crypto-friendly policy will be. And so that would certainly include Singapore, certainly include a lot of the Caribbean international financial centers. Uh, it probably includes Switzerland as well. And the UK is close to that, even though it's also a big economy. Uh, but the trade-off is, or, or the, the countervailing factor is, the bigger a consumer market you have, the less crypto-friendly you are. And the US is in an awkward position because it's, it, 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 fits, uh, it fits very well in, in both boxes. And so there's, there's been this conflict because crypto on one hand is seen as very promising and innovative. On the other hand, it's seen as very risky and potentially threatening to unwitting, unwitting consumers. And, uh, and I think that's the reason for the immobility of policy in some cases. So as a follow-up, you know, you said you're optimistic about fixing some of the issues with regulation as it relates to cryptocurrency. What are some concrete next steps that you'd like to see in order to make that a reality? I think we are getting there on getting an alternative federal payments charter that will ease the activity of, of exchanges, particularly those focused on, on crypto exchange. Uh, we also have more and more of a development of stable coins either hybrid ones or ones that are algorithmic, and particularly ones that are single currency backed, uh, like Tether and USDC, and, and now it looks like Libra will be like this as well. I think we are uh, very much along the way in those. It would be great to have something like the safe harbor that the SEC has proposed. And I believe that you have to have some clarification Maybe regulatory, but I think it has to be legislative. And of course, I, I, I don't, I cannot advocate for specific pieces of legislation um, from my position at Cato. But um, but I think efforts to um, carve out, given specific um, circumstances, carve out uh, scope for digital tokens that are not regulated as securities, not regulated as commodities, that are small platforms for exchange that people should be free to develop for a little while before they are regulated by any of the major financial regulators. I think that is important to, to uh, have ongoing innovation. So I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in people in Congress developing more of an interest in this issue. And, uh, and, and I, I think in general we're moving in the right direction, albeit more slowly than I would like. So as a final question, you mentioned the need for some legislative action. I, I tend to agree with that, of course. And, you know, we've seen people in Congress increasingly show interest in this area. But yet there's others that ask why Congress should spend its time on an industry, you know, that maybe hasn't lived up to some of the ambitious visions that it's laid out. What would you say to the naysayers that think crypto is just a fad and, and maybe not worth the time? Well, hearing that, I'm reminded of that Krugman quote, Paul Krugman, the Princeton economist, the New York Times columnist quote from the late 90s about uh, 10 years from now or 15 years from now, the Internet's impact of, on productivity uh, being completely invisible. He made that prediction. Of course, it didn't turn out right. That's not to uh, doom every other prediction that Paul Krugman has made. I'm sure he's been right on very many other things, but he wasn't all that very successful on that one. And my answer would be that... Be, this being a general purpose technology and one that's caught the attention of a lot of people, chances are that it will have a long-term impact on the economy. And some people seem to confuse the evolution of the Bitcoin price or the Ethereum price or the price of XRP or any other uh, crypto token with the success or value of the technology. And I think by now it is clear to anyone who knows the technology that the two have become entirely divorced, that 
blockchain technology and other distributed ledgers are growing apace and they have implementations in the private sector, implementations in government, and of course, implementations for decentralized technologies, which I think are the most interesting and revolutionary, regardless of the price of any individual digital token, and indeed, regardless of the specific success of one or another crypto token. So let's forget about that. Let's let the people who own Bitcoin and who own uh, Ether and, and others worry about their portfolios. And let's focus policy on the technology and the, pro- the promise that it has for improving, in my area, uh, the, the outcomes of people's investments, but also their ability to transfer funds around the world and also to um, operate in more efficient financial markets that can benefit all. Thank you for listening to Crypto in Congress presented by Hodelpack. If you'd like to learn more about Hodelpack and our mission, check us out at www.hodelpack.org or follow us on Twitter at Hodelpack. Also, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get exclusive updates and access to transcripts from each episode. We'll see you next week.